0: We are launching into a new series, and you can see it here on the screen. Religion, James in 10 Parts. Real religion. Not the fake stuff. Not the stuff that so many of us have been sitting here experiencing for somewhat all of our lives. The real stuff. What is religion? all about. We are going to be seeing here today and over the next 10 weeks what religion is all about. What a relationship with Christ is all about and what better place to discover it than in the book of James. Hands up here if you have spent some time reading through the book of James in the last year. A lot of us have. Hands up if you've spent some time reading through the book of James in your life, just at any point in your life. Most of us have found ourselves at some point in the book of James because it's such a practical book and we are going to see the real Christianity, the religion that is portrayed in the book of James and I am excited to launch into it today. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father. You have given us the opportunity this morning to spend time in your word. And we are thanking you for this opportunity this morning, Father. For so many of us, this is the only opportunity that we get. So we're praying that this would inspire us today, that we may spend more, that we may have the desire to spend more time in your word. May we see how practical the book of James is and can be to our lives today. We pray that your spirit would be here. We pray that you would speak to us today. May I not be seen, but may your spirit be seen to be speaking through me is my prayer. And as you have promised, as Christ is lifted up, we pray that we would all be drawn to his feet this morning. In Jesus' name we are asking these things. Amen. The book of James. The first question that we have to ask ourselves is, why James? And we are going to spend the first part of the presentation this morning looking at why it is we would choose the book of James to spend the next 10 weeks going through. How many here know how many chapters there are in the book of James? A few of us know there's five chapters, and we are going to spend 10 weeks going over five chapters For some of us, myself included, we would think, how could you get 10 weeks of material out of five chapters? Well, I don't want to speak too soon because I don't want to get to week five and have run out of material. But we are going to see that there are a lot, a lot of practical insights that can be drawn from the book of James. And so we are going to launch into our first presentation in this series entitled, the Complete Package. Part one of this 10 part series The Complete Package. And as I was saying before, we are going to start with asking ourselves why the book of James? And we see that there are three main reasons that scholars say that people are drawn to James. The first of which is seen here on the screen. James is concerned with the practical outworkings of theology. Who here in your study of James has seen that to be true? You can say, I can see that James is uh, considering the practical outworkings of theology. I myself would have to agree with that. The second reason why people appreciate the book of James is because it's concise. That's another reason to consider, and it's a reason I'm sure all of us appreciate as well. We don't have to read a lot. We don't have to study a lot in order to get something practical, That we can apply to our experience. The third reason why people are drawn to the book of James and we are asking ourselves this morning, why is it that we would spend time in James? And that is the use of metaphors and illustrations. And we are going to see a number of these used in the presentation this morning. As we go through James chapter 1. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, we are going to see this use of metaphor and illustration that that allows us to get what James is saying in a real way. It, It helps us to apply what he is saying to our situation. Now, we are going to see today that James provides a window into early Christianity, This is something that really excites me and why I see us enjoying the next 10 weeks is because James provides a unique window, a unique window into what the early church was like. Now, we are going to be looking soon at who wrote the book of James, who he was writing to and the situation that he was writing about. And this is going to help us to understand more. But first of all, we have to understand why the book of James. Firstly, it's going to be clear at the end of our presentation this morning that James gives us a unique window into the early Christian church. And this was not a perfect church. This was not a perfect group of people. This was a people that we can relate to today. And so very clearly we are saying, From the outset of this series, why is it that we're studying the book of James? It's because it provides a unique window into what the early church was like, as well as practical information that we can base our Christianity on. We can also see from the outset that the early Christian movement was driven by a practical expression of Christ's teaching. A practical expression of Christ's teaching. And this is really exciting for us because we have the four Gospels. We see the way that Jesus related to people. We see the things that Jesus taught as to how we can be Christians. And now we have James coming around 15 years after the death of Christ and writing this epistle to a group of people who are looking to apply the teachings of Jesus to their own life. Are we as a group of people today looking to apply the teachings of Jesus to our life? We certainly are. We gather here each week in order to have new insight, to gain understanding as to how we can apply Jesus' teachings to our lives. And so James gives us practical illustrations and metaphors as to how we can apply Christ's teachings just 15 years after his death. 15 years After his death. So, the book of James, we are going to see. um, We are first of all going to look at the authorship. Who is this James? There are several James mentioned in the Bible, and we're going to see who the author is. We are then going to look at the audience. Who is James referring to? Who is James writing about? What is their situation? We are then going to look at the unique theological contributions that James makes. And then we are going to see how it is organized and how that organization can help us as we study through the book of James. So the first one that we are looking at right now is authorship. Who was this James that we are looking at? There are two prominent James that are referred to in the New Testament. There is James the disciple. Who here is familiar with James the disciple to some degree? A lot of us are to some degree. Now, James was part of the inner circle. James and John were brothers that followed Christ throughout his life here on this earth. And we see that James was part of this inner circle. There was the 12 disciples. And then within the 12 disciples, there were these three, Peter, James and John, that had a special connection with Christ. They were invited on special missions. They were to witness special things that took place. Now, this is not the James that wrote the book of James. We see that that James um, died in 44 AD um, and he was beheaded. And so that is just before the book of James was written. So that rules that James out. So this is helping us now understand who was writing the book of James. Who knows who the other James was that was mentioned in Scripture in the New Testament? the brother of Jesus, exactly. And so we had James, the disciple, and then James, the brother of Jesus. And we understand as we study through the Bible that there are several reasons why we believe James, the brother of Jesus, wrote the book of James. And we are going to see here that what qualified what qualified James to write his epistle was the spiritual relationship that he had with Christ and not his physical. It could be easy for us to sit back and say, oh, James is just writing as his brother, so can we really take it seriously? Who here, if you were writing about your brother's life here on this earth, would paint him in the best light possible? There's not many hands going up at the moment. We would struggle to, okay, there's a, there's a few that are feeling guilty, so they have to, write. Yeah, maybe your brothers are present, so you have to raise your hand. Not many of us, it would be our intention to paint our brothers in the best light possible. Those that have grown up with especially younger brothers like myself, they're always the annoying ones, right? And I have to be careful what I say here because Luke is much stronger than I am. He could end me in uh, not too much time. So I'm, I'm treading carefully here. But James, the brother of Jesus, what qualifies his epistle, the writing that he does here, is not his physical relationship with Jesus, but his spiritual connection with Christ. We see in the book of John that James, the brother of Jesus, was not even a believer when Jesus was walking on this earth. It wasn't until in the book of Corinthians that we see that that Paul writes that James was converted after the resurrection. It took the resurrection for Jesus' brother to be convinced that he was the Messiah. And so James comes from this skeptical outset, this this really Jewish but skeptical um, uh, outlook on Jesus and the way that he viewed Jesus' ministry. So, we are going to have a unique window into early Christianity through the lens of Jesus' brother, who was at first skeptical that he was anything more than his annoying brother, to what we are going to see here, James's unique perspective on the way that the Christian message can transform our lives. So the next thing that we are going to see, we've seen that James, the brother of Jesus, was the one that wrote the book of James. We are now going to see who James was writing to. We are talking about a group of Jews that have converted to Christianity that have been displaced. They have been uh, removed from Jerusalem where they were dwelling and they, they are part of what's called the diaspora. They have been spread out throughout the Roman Empire, which is the ruling empire of the day. And so these Jewish Christians are displaced. They are impoverished as a result of their displacement. We see several references in the book of James. One of the major themes that we see is the the wealthy and the poor and their relationship to one another. And one of the reasons why we see this is because James was writing to a group of people that were impoverished. They, they had been displaced, impoverished, and then persecuted. They were being persecuted for their beliefs and for their faith. And we are going to see today that we can totally relate to their situation. It says in Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, uh, just to give us a bit of background as to what's happening in the empire at this stage, it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Who were they preaching to? the Jews only, there were these groups of Christians, early Christians, Jewish converts that were going throughout the empire, they were dispersed, the diaspora that were going throughout the empire to these three cities mentioned specifically, and they were talking about the teachings of Jesus. What was the event that brought about this dispersion? It was the persecution that arose. Now, who here is familiar with the story of Stephen? Hands up if you understand somewhat the story of Stephen. We have in Acts chapter 8 this story where Stephen stands up and begins to tell the Jewish leaders that they are the reason, that they are the cause of the Messiah's crucifixion. Of course that's the case. They caused the Messiah to be crucified. They did it by their own hands almost. Let his blood be on us, they cried out. And upon hearing this, the Jewish leaders were not happy. And so they stoned Stephen. And as they stoned Stephen, this dispersion broke out as a result of the persecution. And so we see that these these early Jewish converts to Christianity were, were spread out throughout the Roman Empire. And I've got just a map here to help us understand... So we have Jerusalem just down here in the country of Israel or Palestine. And they were spread right up. So this is the Phoenician coastline just here. And then Antioch, which was mentioned in that verse previously, is up in northern Syria. And then Cyprus as well is mentioned. So these early Jewish converts to Christianity were spread from Jerusalem all the way up to Phoenicia to Cyrus and right up into Syria, or what we would call modern-day Syria. This is very interesting to understand. It's interesting to understand because we are talking about the mid-40s that James is writing. Now, just within several years, Paul is going throughout the Roman Empire spreading the gospel. So when the book of Acts says that they were spread right throughout to the city, or uh, to the Phoenician coast, to Cyprus, and to, to Antioch in Syria, this is actually a relatively small geographical area. This isn't a large dispersion that was taking place. It was relatively sp- small to compare to what Paul was doing. We see Antioch uh, just up there near Aleppo, the capital of modern-day Syria. We see Paul spreading the gospel right throughout the then then known empire, the Roman Empire. And so what we see taking place here, the audience, is primarily Jewish Christians, Jewish converts to Christianity that have been displaced, displaced from Jerusalem and the surrounds. This is very important for us to understand what we are going to read later in this chapter. Jewish Christians, Jewish converts to Christianity that have been spread throughout the Roman Empire, especially there on the coastline of Phoenicia, Antioch and Cyprus. So the next thing that we are going to be looking at is the theological contributions that the book of James makes to our understanding, our broad understanding of theology. It's really interesting uh, what we are about to read here. But first of all, we have to understand that Martin Luther, Martin Luther in his understanding of James makes the comment that we, and a lot of scholars tend to agree with Martin Luther on this, that the book of James should be left aside, or at least can be left aside because of its lack of teachings of Christ. The book of James, let me just clarify that. The book of James can be left aside because of the lack of its teachings or dealings with the ministry of Jesus. And what we see here is in the the Pillar New Testament commentary is Douglas Moo says, No New Testament document is more influenced by the teachings of Jesus than James. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? On one hand, we have scholars following what Luther says that we can leave it aside because of its lack of um, Christianity or its lack of teachings of Jesus. And then we have Douglas Moo saying that, that, that we can actually see in James more of Christ's teachings than any other book in the New Testament. Who here is surprised by that? I personally, when I read this, was shocked I never associated the book of James with the teachings of Jesus, but we are going to see time and time again these inferences to Jesus and his teachings here on this earth. So these are the major theological contributions that the book of James makes. And these are unique contributions. His understanding of God, the way that we see God relating to humanity is unique in the book of James. Obviously, our understanding of God is formed by all of Scripture. Don't get me wrong by what I'm saying here. But James brings a unique contribution to what God is like and the way that he relates to humanity. And we are going to see that come out time and time again. The second unique contribution that James makes is our understanding of eschatology. Now, the eschaton in Greek is simply referring to end-time events. End time events. And James paints an interesting picture of what the end times are going to be like. And we are going to be seeing a unique, James's unique perspective that helps us to build a bigger, more fuller picture, theological picture of the eschaton or the end time events. The third one that we are going to see is his contributions in, by way of law, his understanding of law, and specifically the way it relates to salvation. Many of us wouldn't know that James makes some interesting statements about the law, and in particular, the way it refers to or relates to our salvation. And we are going to see that coming out clearly throughout the series. The fourth one, which some scholars say is the second most prominent theme in the book of James, is this understanding of poverty and wealth and how that relates to Christianity. How we as Christians relate to poor, uh, the poverty, and how we relate to wealth. And we are going to see that come out time and time again throughout our study of James. The fifth one here is, of course, a very well-known passage on faith and works. And many people say that James contradicts what Paul was saying. But we see that the book of James was written before. In the book of Acts, it's recorded that James and Paul met together for a theological discussion. And so we see here that this is primitive Christianity. Let me make that clear. Primitive Christianity. Christianity before they've had time to have the council um, in Acts chapter 15, figuring out what... Um, Gentiles need to do in order to become Christians they haven't yet uh, Paul and James haven't yet had the opportunity to discuss faith and works and how they relate this is a primitive look at Christianity and I believe for that reason it is very relatable for us today all of you primitive people sitting out there today the book of James. We've seen the authorship, the audience, the theological contributions, and now we are looking at the the organisation. So we see that um, author, author, um, Luther again said that James was thrown together. He was throwing things together chaotically. Martin Luther is said to say of the book of James. But we are going to see that there is thought. We are going to see that there is intent behind the way that James is ordered, and we are going to see that coming out very clearly in our 10-part series. The book of James, each of the five chapters, has a major theme that we are going to be dealing with, the first one being perseverance. What does perseverance look like? How important is it in the Christian journey? The second uh, chapter is dealing with faith and how important that is to our Christian experience. The third one, restraint, which many of you are going to be looking to, to miss out on that week's teaching. All of you that are not with restraint. Submission again in chapter four and then patience in chapter five. Are we ready to dive into it? We've got a... A good understanding of the background. Now let's dive into James chapter 1. Please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. It must be said that our understanding of the author, our understanding of the place, our understanding of all of these things helps us to better engage with the text it's like, for example, um, it, reading a story in the Bible or reading a passage of Scripture in the, story, in the Bible without understanding who the author is talking to. It's like listening to a one-way conversation. And many of us are, are good at having one-way conversations. Mm-hmm. Yep, all right, yep, okay, yep, all right. So if you heard my side of the conversation a lot of times on the phone, you would wonder who the heck I was talking to. <laughs> because when I talk on the phone, sometimes it's like, yep, mm-hmm, uh, yep, all right, yep. How, how much does that give you of who I'm talking to and the situation that's taking place? Many of you might be able to guess that I was talking to my mom at that stage on the phone, or we, we could make several assumptions, but for the most part, I'm joking, mom. <laughs> I always end off with, I love you sometimes. The point is that when we listen to one side of the conversation, we don't really have an insight. And so now that we have gone through the historical background, the setting in which this is taking place, it gives us an understanding of who James is talking to. This is no longer a one-way conversation. We now have understanding of who James is talking to, and we have understanding of how it can better relate to us today. So let's get into James chapter 1, and we are going to begin looking at verse 1. It says here, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. James is telling us here who he is writing um, to and what he is writing about or what his credentials are in order to write this epistle. It needs to be said that this is a general epistle. This isn't like the the book of Corinthians that was written to the people living in Corinth. This isn't like the book of Philippians that was written to the people living in Philippi. This is James writing to a dispersed group of people who at one time he was potentially the pastor of, the overseer of. And now he is writing this letter to be sent out, not to any one geographical location, but to all of the Jews, all of the Jewish converts that have come into Christianity. Notice here what James opens with. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who is James? The brother of Jesus. How many of us would introduce ourselves, in my case, my brother being Luke, I wouldn't go up to people and say, hi, my name's Joel. I'm the bondservant of Luke. Not many of us would be proud to announce our connection to our family with with reference to being a bondservant of. But James here very proudly states that he is a bondservant of Christ. Not in the physical sense. It isn't his physical connection with Christ that gives him the ability to write this. It's actually his spiritual connection. He, like Paul, is a follower of Jesus, the messianic figure of the, the Jewish literature. He is a follower of the one true God that sent his son into the world. We see this very clearly coming out throughout the scripture, or throughout the passage that we are going to be reading today. <clears throat> to the twelve tribes which are scattered, abor- s- scattered abroad, Scattered abroad. We see here James' view of his half-brother has changed since growing up together. I would add in there, significantly changed since growing up together. It says in the book of Isaiah, we are speaking now about the expectation of the Israelites. The expectation of the Jews And we are dealing with this passage where it says, To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. It says here in the book of Isaiah, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to what? Recover the remnant of His people who are left from Assyria and from Egypt from Pathrosh and Cush, from Elam in China, from Hemeth and from the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Isaiah here, prophetically speaking, is talking about An an event in the eschaton, an event in the end times when all of those Jews that have been dispersed are going to be what? Assembled. All of those who have been scattered are going to be brought back together. The book of Isaiah speaks of this. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, God revealed several prophecies to his people of these Jews that had been scattered abroad that were going to be brought back together. Jesus picks up on this language in Matthew chapter 19 where he is talking to his disciples about the 12 tribes that will have 12 uh, thrones in his kingdom. Again, the book of Revelation picks up on this theme where it speaks of the 12 tribes and the 12 gates that are going to be dedicated, the 12 pillars that are also going to be dedicated. There is this theme throughout Scripture that in the eschaton, in the end times, that God is going to bring His people back together. James is speaking into this situation. He's speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience, saying that you are part of the 12 tribes. Don't forget your heritage. It's important that you do not forget where you have come from. It's also important that you don't forget where you are going. James is saying to this group of people, by associating them with the 12 tribes, he is saying that you are part of God's end time people. And I believe, as standing here as a Seventh-day Adventist minister today, that I am speaking to God's end time people. Amen? That I am speaking to a people that have been called out for a special purpose at a unique time in history, And that God is doing something unique through our congregation. As James references who he is dealing with here, I believe that we too can see ourselves in this picture. That we too can relate to who James is speaking to. And that we are going to see how practical this message can be to us here today. Even in Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church. Let's jump Into James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. This is a difficult teaching for us this morning. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James is real with the struggles that the early Christians were facing. James is talking to a group of people that are struggling. There is no doubt about that. James is speaking into their real situation. And remember that we are getting a unique window into the primitive roots of Christianity and we see that the early Christians were facing persecution. They were facing trials. They were being tempted by all various uh, means of things. It says here, Christianity was not born in some spiritual utopia removed from our reality. Is that good news for us this morning? that our early Christian roots, that we can relate to the experience that they were going through, that they were not in some spiritual utopia where, where God birthed Christianity. No, these were people that were dispersed amongst the nations. They were living in perverse times. They were living in an empire that was doing all sorts of things in terms of religious practices. Things that they would find abominable. They were being persecuted for their beliefs. And we are going to see that this group of people is who James is speaking to. Remember this group, displaced, impoverished, persecuted. We too can relate to this in some ways. We too can relate in the sense that we are displaced... The Bible says that this world is not our home, and so many of us feel this on the day to day. So many of us, myself included, feel like I am out of place a lot of the time. When I'm having conversations with my friends in the world, when I'm seeing things in the media, when I'm looking at things that, that, that um, so many of us entertain ourselves with. I see that this world is not my home, that I am in fact displaced, that I am out of place. Does anyone here feel out of place at times? Does anyone here feel displaced, like they've been removed from from their setting? So many of us feel uneasy. So many of us feel displaced. And that is exactly who James is speaking to this morning. Impoverished. Many of us are feeling the pinch. Many of us are feeling this impoverishment and persecution. When we think about the conversations that are going on in in the media today, when we think of the, the things that are happening in our country and the way that society is moving, Christians are being set up to be persecuted. Do you agree with me? We are being set up to be persecuted. In our families, in our workplaces, even in our churches, we are being set up to be persecuted. James speaks into this situation today. Trials are not a sign that you have fallen out of favor with God. Hands up if you can say amen to that. Trials are not a sign that you have fallen out of favor with God. So many of us go through life. I, even this week, just living out my day, was feeling the pinch. I was feeling what James is talking about here. I I was struggling actually to relate when James says, to count it pure joy when you are facing various trials. How can we relate to that? How can we as Christians sit here and say, yeah, I love it when I'm being tempted. I love it when I'm going through trials of all various kinds. How many of us can say that I consider it pure joy? One of the things that we can rejoice in this morning is that trial, the act of going through trial, the act of being abused or displaced or persecuted, is not a sign that God has left you. It is not a sign that you are removed from God. In fact, trials are not a sign that you have fallen out of favor with God. It is, in fact, for many of the Bible writers and so many that are written about in Scripture, it is a sign that they are following God. Amen? And we today can relate in the fact that so many of us are caused to doubt when we are faced with trials of all various kinds, we are forced to doubt whether or not God is with us, whether or not we are in a right relationship with God, whether or not God can relate to us in our circumstances. But today we can see very clearly the trials are a sign that we have not fallen out of favor with God. Don't go looking for trials. But when they come your way, take heart that God is with you. I'm going to read a short testimony now that that was um, left out, not intentionally from the say-so Sabbath that we had a couple of weeks ago, but it fits very specifically in what I am talking about here. It says, I have depression. And the week leading up to the funeral, speaking of David North's funeral, and, the, and right up to when I committed myself to start the challenge, Satan was really giving me a hard time with negative thoughts and self-doubting myself, and it was just really doing my head in. How many of us can relate to that? So many of us, myself included. I was constantly praying for God to take control. And when I was regularly taking one hour out of each day to read the Bible, I felt more at peace and confident through God. And I started to appreciate and understand God's word more. It's so powerful to read. As James says here, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We don't count it a joy because of the things that are happening to us. But we count it a joy that it is a reminder that God is faithful to us. Amen. When we are forced to doubt ourselves, when we are forced to realize our limitations, that is an opportunity for God's faithfulness to be revealed in our life. The difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith. Heating it in the crucible of suffering so that impurities might be refined away and so that it might become pure and valuable before the Lord. Count it all joy, friends. Count it all joy when you are facing various trials. God can bring good out of seemingly bad circumstances. Amen. When we read through the book of James, we see very clearly That even in the worst of circumstances, even in the difficulties of life, that God can bring good. And that is why we are here worshipping our God today. Because it is Him alone that can bring good out of the struggles of life. It is Him alone that when all else fails will come through for us. And so we see that out out of seemingly bad circumstances, even then God can bring good. Let's jump into James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And we are at our second last portion of Scripture that we are going to be dealing with here today. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, remember in verse 4 where it said, that, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Nothing. Remember that that is the standard that James is setting for us as Christians. The ideal in Christianity is that we would be lacking nothing. But then he goes on to say if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Notice in the testimony that I read out that when we ask God, that when we come to God, when we spend time with Him, that He is able to come through for us. It is the same thing here. Let us ask of God. Let us ask of God. And what does He do? He gives to us liberally, liberally and without reproach. When I was in college... I went to my lecturer, and just a little bit of backstory. Here it says that when we come to, to God, that we can ask Him and He will give us without reproach, He will not be disapproving of us when we ask Him for anything. He will not be standoffish. He will not judge us for asking. Just to illustrate this, when I was in college, sometimes we ask questions that reveals our lack of something. Is that the case? Yes, of course it is. So, so I go to my lecturer the day before an assignment is due, and I ask them for the question that the assignment was on. To say that they gave me the answer without reproach would be a lie. Because just simply me asking the question revealed that I was not prepared for the assignment. That I had not been faithfully doing my assignment all along. And so many of us fall into the trap that we become scared to ask God for the things that we need. Thinking that He is going to be like our mean, nasty college lecturers and give it to us begrudgingly. Not at all. God is not like us. Can I get an amen on that? God gives to us liberally, generously, the Bible says, without reproach. It says in verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Question, what do you call a donkey with three legs? Wonky. Three-legged donkey. Wonky is the right answer. What do you call a person that doesn't have faith in God? Unstable. Unstable. The word that is used here, translated unstable, it is the only place in the New Testament that this word is used. And it refers to the aftermath of a storm. The aftermath of a storm. This is describing our state without God. Our state not being faithful to God. And this is the imagery that we get. This is a photo that was taken in Japan after the tsunami came through and totally devastated the north of Japan. This is also a depiction of our lives without God. This is also a depiction of what we look like when we do not put our trust, when we do not put our faith in God. We look like this. Can anyone relate to that this morning? Do any of us feel like this at times? Totally devastated, totally destroyed. Friends, our lives without Christ, we are like this, whether we are willing to recognize it or not. We are talking here about a type of Christianity and that type is an integral Christian, a Christian that has integrity. We are seeing here, but let him not ask uh, let him ask in faith sorry, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. When we doubt God, When we bring doubt into the equation, we are unstable. We cannot stand up like that three-legged wonky donkey. We cannot stand up. And let me tell you, the waves are going to keep on coming. The destruction is going to keep on happening in your life if you are not putting your faith in God, if you are not putting your trust in God. Integrity The state of being whole and undivided. This is the type of Christianity that we are talking about today. The complete package. This is what it means to be a complete package. To have integrity. To be whole and undivided. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 5. Throughout the Scriptures, we see the writers of Scripture saying that we ought to have integrity as Christians, that we ought to be single-minded, that we shouldn't put some trust in God, that we shouldn't come to God knowing that He is one of three options, that we should come to God with a singleness of mind. Consistency and integrity are demanded throughout Scripture. This is talking about the way that we approach God. Sincerely, with consistency and integrity. For some degree of doubt. Now, what, how can we approach God if we have doubt in our minds? Are any of us here willing to say that I have zero doubt in my mind when I approach God? Can anyone here, in their right mind, say that I have zero doubt when I approach God? When I approach God, sorry. Douglas Moo says, for some degree of doubt on at least some occasions is probably inevitable in our present state of weakness. Rather, he wants us to understand that God responds to us only when our lives reflect a basic consistency of purpose and intent, a spiritual integrity. So so what we are seeing here is that James is not discrediting any of us. He isn't discounting any of us in our experience. If we have these doubts in our mind, it, it doesn't discredit us from being able to go to God. But what he is saying here is that we need a spiritual integrity, that we aren't with God one day, that we aren't in the world the other day, that we aren't back and forwards all the time, that there is a consistency to our lives, that the trajectory is always onward and upward. There might be times of stumbling. There might be times where we don't have all the answers. And that's okay. But are we going to God for help? Are we going to the one that can answer these problems that we have? Are we going to the God that is willing to give to us liberally and generously? James chapter 1 and verse 9, and this is where we are going to land the plane today. It says in verse 9, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. It, its flowers fall and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade in his pursuits. This is the last thing that we are going to be looking at this morning. This Christian that is humble, and because of his lowly state, he is glorying in exaltation. But then on the other hand, we have this person that has put their trust in their wealth, that has put their trust in their riches, and for that reason, they are going to be humbled. It doesn't say everyone that is rich. It doesn't say everyone that is poor, it's going to swap. But what it does say is those that put their trust in their wealth, they will be humbled. And those that don't have anything to put their trust in except God, they will be exalted. Are we in a position today, church, that we need to trust God? We have no other options. Have we exhausted all other options in our life? Are we Christians with integrity? Are we Christians that have realized that there is no good within us, that there is no good relying on our strength? Why? Because we continue to let ourselves down. Let that Christian come to God. Let that lowly brother come to God and be exalted. I had an experience this week where I was doing Bible studies with a man. And this man spends his days drunk. He's an alcoholic. If we don't go there in the morning, early in the morning, preferably, there's no chance of having a Bible study. Why? Because he's on the drink. And and so I'm I'm there with this man this week. And at the end of the study, I say, would you like to have Jesus in your life? And do you know what he said to me? Good. I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. He said, I can't. I'm not good enough. I can't. I'm so far away from where God wants me to be. I can't accept Jesus into my life. Why? Because look at who I am. Why would he want to be here with me? And I had the privilege of telling this man that he was in the perfect place to receive Christ into his heart. Why he didn't trust himself, he didn't have anything else to lean on. He trusted God wholeheartedly. The Bible says, surely he scorns the scornful, scornful, but gives grace to the humble. Our God is, the God we are dealing with is unlike anything we understand. To the scorns, the scorners, he is scornful. in other words, to the proud. He humbles them, but to the humble, he lifts them up and exalts them. Humility provides a platform for Christ to build upon. Can we say amen? Our humility, our understanding of our weaknesses, our understanding of our inability to come to God, our inability to hold on to the promises that he gives to us, our inability... Our seemingly inability is the very platform that Christ needs to be able to build upon in our lives. Do we want to be built up today, church? Do we want Christ to be able to build us up? In order for that to take place, we must first realize our need of Him. We must first realize our position The last point that James is making here is don't don't hold on to things that aren't going to bring you the biggest reward. Spend your energies on the things that count. Is that relevant for us today, church? Invest your energy in the areas that count. Don't invest your energy where it's not going to mean anything at the end of the day. I can think of so many examples from my life where I have put energy, time and energy, into something that brought me nothing. But I can also think of areas in my life where I have given what little I have to God and He has been able to multiply it beyond understanding. There was a man... That was heaven bound. And so throughout his life, knowing that he was heaven bound, spent his life collecting treasure. Heaping up for himself treasure. And uh, the, his favorite thing to collect was gold. Gold bullion, in fact. Never seen it, but I'm sure it looks nice. And so this man was spending his life investing in this gold. He would do anything to get his hands on, on gold. And so there he is, heaven bound, on his way up to the glory, the glorious uh, 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 New Jerusalem that he is approaching. And as he is approaching, there's a security screening. And so he has to hide his gold. I'm making this up, just so you know, just so we're all on the same page here. There's no security screening on the way into heaven. He's carried this gold up so many stairs. I don't know if there's stairs either. He's approaching heaven. You know where I'm going. He sneaks the gold into heaven. The angel comes along. Who asked you to carry that concrete around? Who asked you to move that concrete? Why would the angel say that? Because in heaven, gold is going to be the thing that we walk on. There's going to be so much gold in heaven... That there is no point in us investing in it here and now. Why? Because it's not going to do anything for us. Spend your energy in the areas that count. Spend your energy on the things that count. And the things that count are those that are going to bring eternal results. Spend your energy on eternity, the Bible is saying. Because that is where you will see the greatest results. Don't waste your time on things that are temporal. Don't waste your time on things that are fading or passing. Spend your time on the things that count. The book of James is so practical. The book of James is speaking right to my situation. And I pray that he is for yours as well. We are going to end with a word of prayer now. And I want this to be a challenge to us. That we would take some time this week to think about the way that we spend our energy. And that we would prioritize the things of eternity. That we would prioritize the things that are going to bring the greatest results in life. And that is eternity with our maker. That is time with our Savior. That is a relationship with Jesus. Are we on the same page, church? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the book of James. We want to thank you for the way that it has been able to speak into our situations today. And Father, we are praying that you would teach us, that you would continue to teach us how we can apply the teachings of your son, Jesus, while he was here on this earth. We are praying that as we continue to go through the scriptures, that things would jump out us, that thoughts would jump out at us as to how we can be better Christians, better equipped for the life that you have called us to here and now. Father, there are people struggling even in this congregation today, and I pray that today's message would be a, a, a real a life changing moment for them. I pray that they too, that we all could find joy in trial. That we would be better focused on the things that are going to bring about the best results. Father, this is our prayer today. We pray this in Jesus' name, knowing that you are the one that gives generously without reproach. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.